Take your Bibles, if you would. We're going to be, again, in the Old Testament. We are in a series called Lessons from the Desert. And this morning, we're going to be talking about timing. All right? Uh, one of the things that uh, I've been impressed upon me as I've read through Scripture is the issue of timing. And so we're going to walk through that this morning. We've been looking into the sovereign work that God did in calling Israel to himself. And so we've been going through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and uh, pulling some of the stories there, kind of um, walking through. And we realize that these lessons have been recorded for us. Hebrews tells us that. And we saw how Israel had to adapt. Last week, we, we, or the week before, we talked about how they had to adjust to a whole new set of parameters much like we do when we come out of the world and into the kingdom of our beloved Jesus, right? And when you suddenly come to know him, you realize, wow, everything's the same, but everything's different. And you've got to relearn stuff, and you've got to relearn how to act. And I'm, I'm uh, oh, clicker. That's a good idea. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> I told you I wasn't awake. There we go. Um, so today, um, what we're going to look at is this added element, the critical element of timing. And trust me, this is important. It's important not just in the spiritual life, it's important in regular life. Okay? And we've all learned lessons that way. And the lesson this week is that God's provision is inextricably linked to his timing. Listen to what I'm saying here. God's provision is inextricably linked to his timing. Uh, we find this set in motion before they ever cross the Red Sea. Go back to the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 13. So if you want to turn there and see where we're pulling from, we're in Exodus 13. And let's look at this object lesson that God puts in motion. We'll start reading from verse 20. It says, As they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Something absolutely unique that God was doing in history. Let's pray this morning. Father, when we uh, read this story, we recognize really pretty clearly that this actual event hasn't happened to us. But there are things in this event that we can learn. There are things that Uh, can be pulled out and extrapolated that become very helpful for our walk with you. And I'm praying for you to connect this uh, through your spirit with our people this morning. And I pray that uh, I will not get in the way, but I will be useful to you and uh, you'll use me the way I'm wired uh, to say something significant that you want to say. So we come in faith this morning. We believe you speak through your word and we ask for you to do so in your name. Amen. All right. So we're talking about God's presence now suddenly manifests itself. Uh, One of my prayers for Norfew is that we would experience God's manifest presence, right? And what that means, it's not just a head knowledge thing or just, yeah, I went to church and I threw God a bone and now I'm a good person or that kind of stuff. But we would actually be impacted by his presence and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And God's presence here was in the cloud. It covered them from the extreme heat in the day and from the cold at night. It was also their protection. When the hearts of the Egyptians had hardened, when they went through this whole deal and they suddenly realized, what have we done? 
They were our cash cow. They were our golden goose. We've kind of let them go. This was stupid. We need to, we've got to go get them back. And so they came to reclaim what they had lost. It says, in, and then if you turn just one chapter farther, Exodus 14. It says, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And just so you understand, when it says the angel of the Lord, that is almost always a, a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. All right? That's Jesus in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. So it says, as The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. Then the story continues that the Lord who was in the pillar of cloud and fire went before them uh, the sea and split and led them to the other side. So there's something really unique here. As they come out, they're heading, God sends them to the sea. They get to the sea. They see Pharaoh's chariots coming behind them. And this cloud shifts and moves. And during the course of the night, it keeps them. They can't get any closer. Then the cloud shifts back. And then it moves and takes them across the Red Sea. So this is pretty dynamic stuff. And why that's uh, important is that this, it's really significant because it tells us that this is at night now. So this is not like Seattle at night where we have so much light pollution you can't even see the stars anymore. They don't have street lights. They don't have headlights on their on their trailers or their wagons or their mules, okay? There's no light at night other than maybe some torches. And if you ever had a torch or a fire, you realize like if you sit by a bonfire, it's really bright by the fire, but once you get away from it, it's dark very quickly. So they're going through the desert. They're going through the Red Sea here. Most of the time we picture that during the day, but it's at night. There's no light there, right? So this pillar of fire leads them and uh, it keeps the, the two opposing sides apart. And, uh, you know, and you would think, you would think that at this point, the Egyptians, uh, can you imagine how that messed up their thinking in their minds? Like, what's going on here? Because, I mean, we're talking warriors. They're used to battling through stuff, and now they're battling a cloud that they can't get through. So, you know, that, that had to really, you would think they would have gotten the point. Right? You would think they would say, hey, dudes. Well, they probably didn't say dudes. Hey, warrior Egyptian fellows. I think God is fighting for Israel. We better be wise and just go back home. You would think they got that point, but they didn't. And the reason they didn't, and this is very important this morning, hardened hearts don't think that way. Hardened hearts cannot see God's hand moving in circumstances. Hardened hearts do not recognize uh, the movement of the Holy Spirit. Hardened hearts are closed off to that kind of inspiration. And they were closed off to it. You know, they didn't think that way back then. They don't today. There are those today who still haven't figured out that God is and will fight for Israel. And they, like Pharaoh, will learn the hard way that God is not to be opposed. Nor is he intimidated or threatened by the armies of the world. Matter of fact, you find in Ezekiel 38 and 39... Uh, in this big battle that's going to culminate, that God says he will make himself known to the nations of the world through the glory of his strength. That's kind of impressive if you're on the right side.
Okay. But one of the questions this morning is, okay, that's true, but what was God after? What was he looking for? Again, in Exodus 14, Moses, uh, God was trying to teach them to trust his leadership. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And I think one of the things that's important here is that we often think the Christian life is a great work. And when we say that, it is. But often that gets interpreted or translated It's a great work for me. I have to do a great work for God. Instead of, God's going to do a great work through us, through me. And so this is, Moses pointing out that same, he says, you you only have to be silent. There's nothing you have to do. God will do the work. God was in the light, the pillar of fire that led them through the Red Sea and the walls of water. And how do we know this? If you look at verse 26, tells us that God, looking down from the pillar and the cloud and fire, had thrown the Egyptians into a panic. How? Uh, all of a sudden, it got mucky and their, their chariot wheels got all gummed up and they're sliding into each other and can't go anymore. And I don't know if you've ever walked through mud with boots on, right? You ever done that where the mud starts to click and pretty soon you're pulling 10 pounds? Have you ever got to the part where you pulled your foot and the boot stayed and the foot came out, right, kind of thing? That's what was happening to the chariots. They were just getting totally uh, bogged down. And verse 27 tells us that the water flowed back into their place when the morning appeared. So as the morning light came up and as they could actually look over the scene, the Egyptians are in a panic at night, the waters flow back. And so God literally led them through the darkness by his light. Isn't that a biblical theme? Right? God leads us through the darkness by his light. But now they're on the other side, and the presence of the Lord begins now to lead them through the desert. That's why we call this series Lessons in the Desert. And what is the lesson that God wishes to impress upon them? He's trying to impress upon them the idea of trust him. Now that shouldn't be strange to us. Because most of us, through our Christian life, what's the lesson been? Trust me. Right? Trust Him. And that's the same thing He's trying to trust His leadership. Just as you trusted Him to walk through the water, so now trust Him to walk through the wilderness. Trust not only where He's taking you, but also how He's going to get you there. Very similar to us, when we come to Christ, we often trust Him to save us. That's a spectacular thing, but it's a little different thing to trust Him through the rest of the process. And that's what Israel's learning, just like we learn. They had seen what he had done with the Red Sea. And now God's saying, don't forget that lesson in the desert. Trust his leadership. Trust his methods. And one more important factor I'm going to throw in the story. Trust his timing. Trust his timing. You ever struggled with God's timing on some of your prayer requests? Right? We're going to talk about that here in a minute. The old saying is, if you ain't got timing, you ain't got nothing, right? Boy, if you've got the knack to hit it, and hit it right, right? Just catch it. That's a a spectacular gift. I usually see it 20 minutes later. But God was interested in getting them in rhythm with them, in sync. So how did he get them in rhythm? So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 9. We're going to go from Exodus now to Numbers. 
And uh, this is a picture of the tabernacle. This was built after Sinai. And uh, we wanted to have a picture of the temple in the cloud. And Margaret went online and all the pictures were so hokey that they would make you laugh instead of be serious about it. So we didn't put it there. So you have to use your imaginations this morning. You have to imagine a pillar of cloud coming off that tabernacle, rising up, and then spreading out over the sky. And in that pillar, there are flashes of light and lightning echoing across the whole time as that happens. All right? So you need to use your imagination. But it's centered over this tabernacle, of which there's the holy, and then the holy of holies, and in the holy of holies is the ark. And in Numbers it says this, on the day, uh, starting with chapter 15, I mean verse 15, sorry, chapter 9, verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. And at the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. And they kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Okay? Now, at first glance, when you think about that cloud and you think about it lifting itself, that's going to be pretty impressive, right? But I don't know if you've ever gone to really uh, fantastic fireworks shows on the 4th of July. They're awesome. But then, after a while, you start going, okay, when, when's this done? Right? Because you kind of get used to it. Or if you go to two or three fireworks shows, okay, saw that at the last one. And notice that the cloud lifting is not uniform. It's not a set pattern that you can anticipate. It's kind of actually what we'd call herky-jerky. Right? Sit for a while, lift, lift quickly, sit for a month. And what's God doing here? What God's doing here is getting them to trust and follow His lead, but also His timing. As they went to different places, the clouds settled for a period of time and they were getting synchronized with the Lord. I mean, put yourself in their place. See if you can relate to this. Can you imagine hiking through the wilderness all day? Gratefully, right? Desert, wilderness, hot. Gratefully getting a chance to rest only to find out that you're up and at it again right away the next morning because the cloud moved again. Oh, seriously? Oh, couldn't we have stayed one more day, right? Kind of thing. Uh, you know, get that. I mean, seriously? Again? We, get, uh, we just got here, right? Kind of, kind of thing. Kind of like your family vacations. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How long are we staying? Right? That's, yeah. So it's very human. Or you sit there. And you sit there. 
and you sit there. And then you sit some more. And the cloud hasn't moved for a month, maybe more. I mean, there are no more cactus to check out. Right? You've seen everything that's there. And you start going, how, how long are we going to sit here? Not getting any younger. Why is he stalling? Maybe he knows, and this is where doubts and fears creep in, maybe he knows there isn't a promised land. Maybe he doesn't know how or where to take us. Maybe he's fumbled the ball, and we better start thinking about how to do this ourselves. But what was God really doing? Well, he was teaching them timing. He was teaching them pace. He was teaching them how to literally stay in step with him. This is a phenomenal foreshadowing of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Listen to how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit's testimony uh, when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. In John 14, he says this about the Holy Spirit. But the Helper... Let me get it up there. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of what uh, God has taught us. And then in Galatians 5, we read this. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We've talked about this often here at Norfew. And that, this literally is the place where we get the term walk with God. Right? The idea of walking with Him, being synchronized with Him. And keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, I want to suggest this morning, is what's being modeled in Numbers chapter 9. In other words, there wasn't a synchronized pattern. God was saying, follow my lead. Get used to adjusting to me rather than me adjusting to you. Besides just saying flat out no to God or not listening, la la, I can't hear you, right? But we do those too. Um, there are two uh, relational faux pas that I have warned about when, when it comes to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. The first is to get impatient and rush ahead of the Holy Spirit. And the second is to delay and drag our feet when God wants us to do something and then miss the opportunity. Not surprisingly, both of these are illustrated in the desert wanderings and they're there for us to learn from. Let's talk about the danger of impatience and uh, rushing ahead of God's timing. This is in Exodus 32. This is uh, the story that we would know as the story of the golden calf. right? And it says this, When the people saw that Moses, and what's the key word there? Delayed right? to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So the key word there I mentioned is delayed. But the question is in whose opinion? Delayed by who? Who's saying it's delayed? If you read the book of Numbers, uh, the previous 12 chapters, right? So the, the previous 12 chapters, think about that for a minute. That's a lot of text. Are God and Moses in a very intense conversations about the plans of the new nation? They aren't delaying at all. They are busy doing some serious planning. But from the text, we learned that Moses was up on the mountain for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. So that is what? A month and a half-ish, right? 
It's a month and a half. So down below, they're sitting there watching the fireworks and the rumblings and the peals and the trumpets blaring. And, but after a while, they're like, okay, that isn't really doing anything. It's a nice uh, audio-visual effect, but nothing's really happening. And besides, Moses walked into that, and we don't think anybody can live through that. So he's probably gone. And we probably, we're not sure why we're here in the first place, so maybe we should go back, right? That's what they are kind of wrestling with. The statement that's telling is we don't know what's become of them. Notice they don't say we prayed about this. Okay? Notice there's no mention of prayer here. It's their thoughts and their thoughts purely. We've sat too long. We're done. We want to go. We're not asking permission. We're just going to put it in motion and leave. Here's the thing. They got impatient. Got impatient. Then they took matters into their own hands. Have you ever done that? I've done that. Usually when we do that too, what are the results of that? How well has that gone for us? Yeah, you think we learn, right? Now, before we go all off on them, right? Dumb Israelites, you know, kind of, why don't you get a clue? Uh, the question needs to be asked this morning, has God ever moved too slow for your liking? Has God ever moved too slow for your liking? Have you ever snapped your finger and said, hey, yesterday, you know, I have prayed two whole days. You have not answered. Now, first of all, that's such a lie because has anybody ever prayed for two whole days? No, you've prayed during those two days, but you didn't pray for the whole two days, right? So we stretch and exaggerate our uh, sincerity and involvement in that kind of stuff. But um, we stretch, right? Why do we stretch? Because we get frustrated. Have you ever been frustrated by the apparent silence of heaven when you have a need? Like we often say it's like praying to a, a brass ceiling, right? Nothing gets through. Remember, there are two reasons why God brought them into the desert in the first place. The first was to what? Humble them. The insinuation being there that God knew something about them they didn't know about themselves. And what was that? They were pride, arrogant, stubborn, stiff-necked, mule-headed, and he calls them that in Scripture all the time. Right? He was trying to break them of that. And the second was to find out what was in their heart. It was to test their hearts and to find out uh, would they actually follow him. The other thing we have to remember in this story is the whole camp is not unified. Okay? This is not one complete homogenous group. There's camps within the camp. And some of them are irritated, some of them are rabble-rousers, some of them are devout. Uh, but uh, some wanted to stay, some wanted to go. But here's the thing. As the time stretched farther and farther, the, uh, as the rubber band got pulled like that, uh, the more the goers had more influence and they won. Right? They overcame the ones who said, no, we should wait till he comes back, and they won. And so you know the rest of that story. The rest of the story is Moses actually comes back down. Joshua's attendants with him. They hear this uproar in the camp. Joshua says it's war. Moses says, that's not war. That's a party. 
They've broken in, and really, what's the deal? They just wanted to break the traces. They wanted to break out and party and have some fun. They were sick of these new rules, and so they were just going to break loose. And so they go down. Moses takes the Ten Commandments, smashes them at the feet of the mountain, at the base of the rock, and grinds it up into powder, makes them all drink it. And Scripture says that day, 3,000 of them died. It was a costly, costly error. The other danger of, uh, is disobedience. And that's, uh, oh, where am I here? I'm 14, oh, My titles are goofed up. Okay. Just say, that one says danger of disobedience, all right? Okay. It says, then they rose early in the morning, went up to the heights of the hill country. This is now, they've gone all the way through the desert wanderings. I'm going to the end of the journey now. And they are ready to go in and they hit a bump in the road. It says, They rose early in the morning. They went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, and you will be struck down before your enemies. You remember that story well, right? They come up to the promised land. They pick 12 spies, they send them into the land. It's a fantastic land, but there's giants and walled cities and nasty people in there. And so they come back, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, give a good report, we can take it. Ten of the spies give a bad report. By the way, do you remember the names of the ten spies who gave the bad report? Can you name one of them? Who's the two names you remember? Joshua and Caleb, right? That's because they did what they were supposed to do. But the ten spies give a bad report, and so they wail in the camp. Okay? They wail in the camp. They've come to the promised land. It's right before them. It's a fantastic opportunity, but it's going to require courage, and it's going to require faith. And then it says in Numbers 14, all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Right? Just breaking out. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Here's an interesting thing. As they're looking at this step, the the wilderness that they so hated and despised is suddenly looking good. Isn't that weird? What we hate sometimes looks good because we aren't obeying. And they said, Would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader, i.e. get rid of Moses, and go back to Egypt. This is where they really break out. This is where they are calling God into account. This is like, this is a really bad joke, God. This is ridiculous, and we are not going in there. They are rejecting God's leadership flat out. God's response How long will this people despise me? How long will this people despise me? That's not good. Worse, the opportunity passed. Okay? The next day they realized, well, maybe we should have done what he said. So they're going to rush up in the hill country and they're going to try and take it. And Moses says, You're idiots. Why are you doing that? You're not going to succeed. God's not with you anymore. You didn't don't you realize the only way you can take the land? is if the Lord is with you, you can't take it on your own strength or your own power. You know, and that's a great lesson in the Christian life. The land can be taken if the Lord is with you. 
but not by your own strength or your own power. It won't work that way. So they decided too late to obey and they end up going in their own strength and they get soundly defeated. Worse, here's what's worse, there's no, there's no promised land. No milk and honey. Can you imagine the agony of turning about face and stepping back towards that desert? Can you imagine what that felt like? Have you ever done that when you were supposed to be obedient and you didn't obey? And then you had to turn back and go back to what you had before and it just feels like death? That's what they were experiencing. That's why the book of Hebrews records the Holy Spirit saying, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is Hebrews 3, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. In other words, this isn't just once. This is an established pattern. This has happened for a long time. This not going into the promised land set up 40 years of testing. And God said he, he struggled with them. He says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion the day testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, and here's God's assessment, they always go astray in their hearts. That was the telltale symptom. They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they'll never enter my rest. Now I have to tell you something. As I did this message this week, I trembled in my soul. Okay? Not just because of our culture. Culture, yeah, I, all that stuff. But as I wrote this as I wrote out this message, I could clearly see in my 39-year history with the Lord where I was guilty of both of these transgressions. Dead to rights. I can list them for you. I did exactly what you're not supposed to do. There were times when I was really upset with God. You ever get really upset with God? I was really upset with God. And I called his timing and motives into account. And there were times when he asked me to step in faith and I failed to respond. I let fear instead of faith motivate me and I shudder to think what opportunities I've missed to see God work in mighty ways because I was afraid. And how guilty have I been of attributing evil to God's motives instead of good? How about you? That's why the Bible speaks so strongly about what it calls this thing, hardness of heart. It's something to be avoided at all costs. Attributing bad motives to God's intentions for us and actually calling God's intent towards us evil. That's something that the Lord does not deal well with. Well, here's the good news. God still wants to tabernacle with us. For as true as what I just shared with you is, I've also known His presence. I've also known His goodness. I've also known His kindness towards me. I've also known His forgiveness. And I have known and, and do know presently His blessing. So I want to talk on that side a little bit. Here, 
Here's the idea. What was God doing in the desert? He wanted to tabernacle with them. That was the whole idea behind the tabernacle is he wanted to dwell with them. In other words, be at home with them, live with them. John 14, he says, If you love me, Jesus is saying this, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. The Holy Spirit still dwells with us and still wants to lead people in truth. This dwelling is called abiding. It's an old word, right? It means to tabernacle, to dwell with. God wants to dwell with us, to spend time with us. It's the idea of intimate fellowship, very similar to the fellowship in a good marriage between a husband and a wife or a good family uh, between parents and children. And the Holy Spirit will help us and create in us a right heart. He will help me do what I otherwise couldn't do and he will lead me to truth. Jesus goes on to say uh, in John 14, he says this, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him and we'll come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and that word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. This idea of home, this idea of home is not, in other words, what I'm trying to say is the idea of home is not just a head thing with God. Okay? It's just something to process and assimilate. It's a heart thing. Think about your home. In your home, you use both your head and your heart as you relate to the people in your family. It can't just be head and it can't just be heart. It has to be both. It requires both to be engaged. And again, God wants to dwell with us that way. This is not knowing about God. This is knowing God. Dwelling with Him. His presence, His leading, His comfort, His strength, His encouragement. John goes on to say this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. When Israel obeyed God in the desert, how did they do? They flourished. When Israel disobeyed God in the desert, what did they do? They shriveled and dried up. Right? Just read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That pattern was repeated over and over again. 1 John says this, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he taught you, abide in him. So when it comes to fruitfulness, attachment to God is everything. Presence with God is everything. His leading is everything. And that's what he was trying to teach them in the desert, is not only his leading, but his timing. And I want to suggest for us that timing is going to matter in the present and the future. We're going to have to know not only what God wants us to do, but what's the timing of what he wants us to do. And that, I'm sure, has been illustrated all over your life and my life together. Let's learn from this. Let's not be hard-hearted like they were. And it says how many died in a day, right? Let's not be hard-hearted. Let's be soft-hearted and Abide with the Lord. Let his Holy Spirit lead us in the anointing that he's given us as we are been, have been saved and as we have walked with him. Let's not question God's motives. 
This week, when you're tempted to call God into account, remember these stories. And don't do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this this morning. I think it, it's pretty vivid. It's pretty real to what we experience. Even though we're not in a desert and we live in a city, we do know what it's like to hear your voice. We do know what it's like to hear timing. We do know what it's like to miss opportunities. Lord, there's a lot of times we have not been right with you just like Israel. We have second-guessed and actually lived like uh, you should seek our opinion instead of we need to seek yours. We ask you for forgiveness of that this morning. Could you be gracious and forgive that in your spirit and recognize that we are foolish children, that we are but dust? Could you help us have a good heart this week, a soft heart? This morning, someone had a hard heart, Lord. They would just say, you know what? That's actually true. I need to stop that. I need to open back up to the Lord. I need to not call him into account. Lord, I want to be open to you this week. May you find a a better and different response from us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.